1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure you know the challenge there is of talking about church. Uh, And in the first instance, the challenge is that the word church has a very broad usage. So think about this. Uh, Church can refer to a denomination, can't it? The Anglican church as opposed to the Presbyterian church. It can refer to a building. See that church on the hill. Uh, It can refer to a community organisation. Northwest Anglican, that's my church. Or it can refer to a gathering of God's people. A meeting of people who come together to worship and serve and grow in their love of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, whenever you read about church, it's this final meaning that is being referred to. The spiritual family of God. The Christian fellowship created by the Holy Spirit through the testimony of the mighty acts of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to be looking at 1 Thess 1. It's Paul's opening chapter to the letter that he sent to the church in Thessalonica that he planted and loved. Let me start by telling you what this passage is not. What this passage is not. This passage, chapter 1, I'm sure you saw it as we read then, is not a clear definition of what church is. Nor is this passage a step-by-step outline of what churches are to do. We've got to work that out from other parts of the Bible. But here's why I want us to look at this chapter. The church in Thessalonica was a wonderful church. They had so much right. There is so much to admire about them. And here in this first chapter of 1 Thess, we're just given this this snapshot, this peek through a window at a church about whom there is lots to like and lots to learn. So today we're going to see two things and then we're going to think about what that means for us here at Norwest. Firstly, we're going to see that church is the chosen. And then we're going to see that existence is an example. You know, what I love about 1 Thess 1 is in this really straightforward section of the Bible for the Apostle Paul, it's straightforward, uh, we're told a couple of things that you would not know by merely attending church. You wouldn't work this out by turning up. You see, I think if someone was just to turn up here at Norwest for a couple of weeks out of the blue and try to work out what we're about by mere observation... 
they wouldn't end up with a full picture of what church is. No, no, you need the Bible to fill that in for you. I think if someone was to come here on a Sunday and watch a church service and then go away and write an essay about what this church was, they would essentially end up describing some like-minded individuals who came together because they shared something in common, perhaps like the local hockey club or young liberals, young labour or something. And, And you know what? Part of that is right. It's just nowhere near the full story. So we're going to see a bit more of the picture as Paul paints it out for the Thessalonians. And here's the first thing he shows us. It is that church is the chosen. Church is the chosen. We see this in verse 4. Can you have a look at that? For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You know, I want to say this is just a wonderful verse and here's why. Because Paul tells us here that God's people who meet here at Norwest week by week and in other places around the world do so because they have been elected. That's the word Paul uses. Elected by God. Elected to belong to him and to one another. Chosen. Called. This is remarkable for two reasons. You know, this whole idea that we are called by God to be his people is a stark and wonderful reminder that left to ourselves, we do not want to leave our state of untroubled sinfulness. We're content without God. Life's not perfect, but life is mine is how we think. And this idea of election in the Bible, which Paul so unembarrassingly puts out there for us, shows us that what is needed is for God to break in, open eyes, soften hearts, and call his people to himself. God's work start to finish. Brothers and sisters, church is the chosen, which is why there should never be any sense of self-entitlement when you come to know God through Jesus Christ. Because you know that he has chosen you. Not the other way around. But more than that, the fact that church is the chosen reminds us, and we need reminding, brothers and sisters, that none of us are here because of our own good deeds. We are not in God's family because we are moral. We're not building up brownie points for the divine scales of justice by our attendance here at church or community group or mowing the lawns or cleaning the church. Now, now you do see what that does, right? Just think about this. Here's the logic. We're elected, which means we're not here because of our good works. And what that means is we're free to be here and to be here and be free. We are free from that sense of slavish religiosity that always niggles at us and tells us to keep pulling our socks up. We're free from that guilt that many feel of turning up to church to hear again how we have disappointed God. God's election, God's choosing of us to belong to him means that we don't have to pretend to be moral. We just have to know we can never be moral enough as we throw ourselves upon Jesus. We don't have to be righteous. We just have to know we can never be righteous enough as we throw ourselves upon Jesus. You know, brothers and sisters, I want to speak personally for a moment here. Uh, If it wasn't for Jesus, I really wouldn't be into church. Now, don't get me wrong. 
You're all nice enough. And I know you're sitting there thinking, gee, that's ironic, Pete, because we wouldn't be here either. And you're nice enough. But you shouldn't be here if it's not for Jesus. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. If you want to hear a great public speaker, there is much better than here. Just Google TEDx. Fabulous uh, talks there. If you want to hear great music, there's better than here. Musos, I'm sorry, but there is. The the SSO, Sydney Symphony Orchestra, they run a brilliant summer program. I encourage you to look at it. If you're after opinions, don't come here. Go to the Bull and Bush. There you can drink beer at the same time as you listen to opinions. If you're looking for a mutual interest group, you can find one with people much more like you than here. I mean, as I look around this room, I see people who have almost nothing in common from the people sitting around them. Almost nothing in common. Except for one thing. Really the only thing. Jesus, who calls us to be his people. The one whom we preach and speak about. The one whom we sing praises to. The one who shapes and fills our opinions. The one who gives our lives purpose beyond any other purpose. Jesus. The one who weaves our personal individual stories into his massive story of hope and forgiveness and redemption for a world in darkness. The one who takes people who are just so different from one another, male, female, employed, unemployed, healthy, unwell, young, old, Australian, Chinese, Sri Lankan, Indian, and on and on, and jams us together here, like it or not, as his family. Brothers and sisters who come from the same father. Church is all about Jesus and his people are called to him, elected to belong to him. Jesus has us and holds us and sought us and bought us. That is who we are. If you get that, you'll get Norwest. And if you don't, you won't. First thing we see in one Thess, church is the chosen. That was verse 4. But there's something else we see, which is this. Existence is an example. Now, by that, what I mean is this. We're shown in 1 Thess 1 that this church was a model. We see that in verses 7 and 8, that the church has become well known in the region. So this is the region, that's uh, uh, the area around the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea, uh, and the, the area we're spoken about is this large area here. It's, we're told it's Macedonia and Achaia, which pretty much means all of modern-day Greece today, and an area further north as well. It's a huge area. So this one small church has become known across this massive area, and for two main things. The first is in verse 9. We read this. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Brothers and sisters, the church in Thessalonica has become known or had become known for conversion. Now we learn here, don't we, that this church was a mainly Gentile church, that is they were idol worshippers and they'd become known across this huge area for the way that people had started to lay down their idols, turn their backs on their idols to serve, follow and love the living and true God. This church had become known for conversion. Now, you do know that turning from idols is what happens every time someone comes to Jesus, right? You you do know that. So, 
That's what we read in John 8. You know that story where the Pharisees dragged that woman before Jesus who's been caught sleeping with someone who wasn't her husband? And, and the, the religious authorities, the Pharisees say, Ha! Ah, Jesus, what do you say about this one? Jesus in that story brilliantly, brilliantly just shows the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisee leaders. And they all walk off. And then Jesus turns to the woman. And he doesn't say to her, he doesn't say, Sister, they're hypocrites. You need to live your life in a way that makes you happy. And if you feel God approves, that's fine. doesn't say that. What does Jesus do? He loves her. He looks at her and he says to her, Sister, go and sin no more. He could well have said, Sister, go and turn from your idol. For that is exactly what she needed to do. You know, an an idol may well be a piece of stone or silver or wood. Or it might be a lover, a job or a reputation. An idol is that thing that vies against and supplants God in Christ as the chief source of joy, meaning and hope in one's life. And, And when someone turns to Jesus and repents of their sin, they turn from an idol. If you know Christ, you did that. You did that. It may have been a crude, tangible object like a house, car or boat. Much more likely, though, it was a subtle, intangible reality like your appearance or your need for a life partner or your hunger for a name of repute or your longing for security in the material things of this world. Brothers and sisters, all of the elect at one time worshipped idols. In any case, the church in Thessalonica was becoming known for the way people were turning from them. Isn't that brilliant? You know, as we become larger here at Norwest, we will inevitably become known. I just want to say that that is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It is neither a desirable thing nor an undesirable thing. It's just a thing. You could call it a sociological reality, but here's the thing. If it is true that as we grow larger, we will become known, the question is this. What do you want this church to become known for? Now, just to be clear, almost always you have absolutely no control over what your church becomes known for. I'm well aware of that. But I'm saying if we did, if you did, what would you desire this church become known for? Well, I would want us to become known if it's going to happen and if we could control it, which we probably can't, but I would want us to become known for the very same thing that the Thessalonian church became known for. Conversion. Idol turning. Where people start to say, you know, that church at Norwest, that is a place where dead people find life. There's a second thing that the church in Thessalonica had become known for. They were known for their, listen to this, their new view of the future. Now, can I say, that seems a bit disappointing to me. And I I think it's a bit strange because you would expect something else. Like the church in Thessalonica was known for conversion and zeal. Uh, Conversion and, and passion. Conversion and fervor. No, just a new view of the future. Really? Let's have a look. Verses 9 and 10. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Listen to this. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Brothers and sisters, this church had become known for their patience. 
People were converted. They turned from idols to Jesus, the one who saved them and us from the coming wrath and the righteous judgment of God. And they waited. And we're told that they waited because they now knew that the future looked different. There was a new future where Jesus would return to take his people with him to a new heavens and a new earth, where there'd be a general judgment before God of all people. So it seems to me that in one fest, the church there is so sure of Jesus' return, so motivated by Jesus' return, that it impacted their lives in the present so much that they became known for it. They became renowned for living differently. Here's the point. I am not sure that the conviction of Jesus' return motivates me or you like it should. I wonder how you'd live differently if you knew that Jesus was returning in nine months. I reckon my quiet times would get a bit better. Friends, you do know, don't you? I I know you know this, but you know that your view of the future drives everything you do. You know that, right? Your view of the future drives everything you do. The government realises this as they deal with the challenge of chronic unemployment in certain sections of our community. One of the things that they've worked out they need to do is help people envisage and imagine and see a different future, a new future which impacts the way they live in the now. Or, for example, in Tuesday's Sydney Morning Herald, there was an article, listen to this, you might have seen it, there was an article that talked about a new proposal for homeless shelters to serve alcoholic drinks to homeless people with alcohol addictions. Seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Well, the early research was showing that it was having an effect in lowering the amount of alcohol people were consuming. Now, that just doesn't make sense. How does that work? I quote from the story. People drink less when freed from the stress of having to search for a bed every night and when they feel part of a community. You see what that shows us, right? Your view of the future, even where you're going to sleep, absolutely impacts the way you think, live, speak, marry, bury, give, take, love, hate, write, now. And I've heard it said that disciples of Jesus are those who know what time it is. What that means is disciples of Jesus are people who know the time in which they live. They know they live between Jesus' first coming, where he died upon the cross and was raised from the grave, and his second, where he will come to take his people home to be with him and judge the living and the dead. And disciples of Jesus know that that changes how they live. Wouldn't it, become, wouldn't it be amazing if we become known as the church? No, I think, you know, that church really acts as if they believe Jesus is coming back. And I want to say that, that knowledge that we live between Jesus' first and second coming drives all we do here. It, 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 our approach to mission, our approach to ethics, our approach to evangelism. I trust and pray in your families the way you raise your children the way you use your money, the employment you seek, the schools you want your kids to go to. I I trust that knowing where you live for you, as it does our church, is an eternal perspective that shines light onto your now. Let me go a step further. You actually can't know how to live. You actually can't know how to live unless you're waiting patiently 
for our Lord to return. Can't know how to live. Unless we learn as individuals and then as families and then as a church to understand the times and therefore to hold some things lightly and other things tightly. If we don't know the times, here's what we'll do. We will build on sand. We will build bigger barns. We will mourn like those who have no hope when faced with death. We will think that heaven is on earth. We will believe that we are meant for here as opposed to knowing and living like we're aliens and strangers. We will cease being salt and light as we are strangled by the same things that those who have no hope are strangled by. And here at Norwest, those who preach and teach, me and others, are of the firm conviction that it is our role, our place, our vocation to bring before you your election in the Lord with all that that entails and to remind you and ourselves of the glorious future that awaits us, that has broken into our present world and which drives all we do, that view of the future which drives everything. Many of you will have heard of Don Carson, Canadian biblical scholar. Well, he puts it better than I ever could. He says this. The church, that's us, is a microcosm of the new heaven and the new earth, brought back, as it were, into our temporal sphere. That means now. We are still contaminated by failures, sin, relapses, rebellion, self-centeredness. We are not yet what we ought to be. But, by the grace of God, we are not what we were. For as long as we are left here, we are to struggle against sin and anticipate, so far as we're able, what it would be like to live in the untarnished bliss of perfect righteousness. We are to live with a view to the day of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is what church is about. And this is what you are being invited to be a part of here at Norwest Anglican. Can I say, I know it doesn't always look like that. Some weeks it doesn't look like that much at all. But you have to know, and the Bible promises, that the truth is deeper than the appearance and the reality much better than the execution at times. I want to finish by letting you know what you can expect from Norwest Anglican as a church. Four things, and here's the first. Always good to put this up front. Norwest Anglican will disappoint you. It will. I will, our staff will, our wonderful people, that's you, will, our preaching will, our music will, our pastoral care will, our community groups will. I could go on. We're going to let you down. Now, why is that? Well, very simply, as Don Carson says, we are still contaminated, are we not? I am, by failures, sin, relapses, rebellion, self-centeredness. We are not yet what we ought to be. Brothers and sisters, this building right now is full of broken, somewhat dysfunctional, pained and strained people who live under the shadow of death. You know, that's a pretty heavy burden to carry. And at times that bubbles to the surface. And yet, we are not what we were. We are no longer people without hope. We are no longer people without light. We are God's people born anew, washed clean of sin and filth by Jesus Christ and raised with the saints of old by Jesus Christ. We are, for all our mess, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ.
which is to say, in one sentence, expect the most wonderful things from an West Anglican and never be surprised when it's people let you down. Norwest will disappoint you. Number two, Norwest will capture you. Norwest will capture you if you allow the gospel to capture you. If you allow the gospel of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to capture you, if you allow God's word to open your eyes to who you are, to who he is, to who his church is, if you get a taste of that, if you can just hold on to the tassel of that rug, you are in for a ride, you're in for a journey. Like the many people who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ here over 30 years. Like the many people who found themselves stretched and encouraged and challenged to do things they'd never thought they'd do in their life. Like repent. <laughs> like pray. Like come to know Jesus' remarkable love for them. Like start to live lives in the service of others. Who does that? As they grow and are discipled and built up into Jesus. It'll do that. Thirdly, Norwest will challenge you. It'll challenge you. (laughs) And that's because we're a church that has Jesus Christ at the centre of all we do and Jesus is the most challenging person in the history of the world. Sort of par for the course. More than that, we're a church that has God's word, the Bible, at the centre of all we learn and wrestle with. And the Bible is the world's most challenging book, par for the course. And Jesus, through the Bible, listen to this, Jesus, through the Bible, if you commit to this place, will call you out from yourself in ways that you would not choose nor imagine. This year, we will be studying, amongst other things, Jesus' view of the church from 1 Corinthians. Buckle up. That's going to be deeply challenging. Then, we're looking at Jesus' view of marriage and same-sex marriage as we slow down and consider that. That's going to be tricky. Bring it on. Then we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, the one who brings life. You cannot help but be challenged by God's word as we sit under and look at and learn more about our Lord Jesus Christ and how he calls us to live differently, think differently, be different in a world that has turned its back on its God. Finally, Norwest will comfort you. For that is what family does. You know, one of the things that has moved me most in this place over the last six years is the way that this church rallies around its own. Even if that person who is its own isn't known to others. When someone is grieving here, when someone is pained, brothers and sisters in Christ are there. You know, some people in this church have suffered unspeakable loss. And yet the comfort of the household of God as they have prayed for and loved and helped and wept with people. It's been a privilege for me to behold. That's how it works in God's church. And so, my brothers and sisters, I call on you to be committed to one church service, one congregation of the saints who you can live and love and learn with over the next year. I call on you to give yourself this year fully to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to his people, and to his kingdom. For this is one way that we live life together. Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, forgive us for the way we sometimes see church as a hassle, an obligation, 
sometimes a bit of a mess. Forgive us for turning up here sometimes wanting to be entertained or charged up. And give us a new vision of who we are under you. Those purchased by your blood. Those set apart for eternal life. Those who are to live in this place as an outpost of heaven. That as others look at us, they see us and think, what is with them? And then those who are able to speak quickly and winsomely of the Lord Jesus who makes us who we are. Make us this more and more this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.